Australian ice skater Stephen Bradbury had made it to the uh, speed skating final. He's up there. Uh, with only one lap to go, he was doing great. He was only about half a lap behind uh, everyone else. Uh, and then the unthinkable happened. On the very last corner of the race, all the other three uh, athletes all crashed into one another, went into the barrier on the side, and Stephen Bradbury just skated past in astonishment to win Australia's first and probably only ever uh, speed skating gold medal. Uh, it was a hilarious reversal. Now, you see a reversal all the time in life. Sometimes uh, they're a little bit more uh, significant uh, than that one. Uh, I think perhaps one of the greatest reversals of uh, 21st century history has been the conviction of Nazi German, Germans for their involvement in the Holocaust of World War II. Uh, the latest to be uh, convicted uh, earlier this year was former Auschwitz guard Reynold Hanning, and he was found guilty of uh, being an accessory to murder for at least 170,000 people. Uh, how the tables turned for Hanning. Uh, at the time, he must have thought he was on the winning side, isn't it? But justice came in the end. The guard became the prisoner. It's always tempting, I think, in our world to be living for the present moment, uh, to seek short-term pleasure, to be on the side of the powerful, to be seeking honour and praise from the world at large, uh, to use the world's twisted means to get all of those things. Because in the short term, those things promise satisfaction and joy and the praise of our peers. But our passage warns us this morning, there's already been a dramatic reversal in world politics. Now, and I do not win uh, Donald Trump on this occasion. God has turned the tables on history through Christ. And so how we live now will determine when the tables are turned if we find ourselves on the right side of history. Well, as I mentioned, we're at the climax of the book of Esther. Uh, Esther the Jew, remember, had gone from rags to riches. She's now Queen Esther over the mighty Persian uh, Empire. But things had taken a turn for the worse as uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, uh, failed to bow down and give homage to the evil Haman. Uh, and so as revenge, uh, Haman had come up with this evil scheme to destroy not only Mordecai or his family, but every one of the Jews uh, in a single day. And uh, at the end of chapter 4 last week, Mordecai had urged Esther to go to the king, to, to, to put herself on the line, to plead for her people, uh, even though it might cost her her life. And as we uh, come to the climax today, uh, the story slows down. Uh, if you have a look on the slide, uh, the story began in the third year of King Ahasuerus. Uh, the edict, e, the evil edict of Haman went out in the twelfth year. Uh, but as so, that first uh, few chapters is a period of over nine years. Uh, but as we come to chapters five to seven today, the climax, time slows down. The camera fixes on this one important event that spends just two days. In those two days, the history of the world will be turned upside down. 
Well, in chapter 5, we see uh, both sides making preparations for this day that will change history. And it all begins with Esther's preparations uh, to save her people. So chapter 5, verse 1, you see on the third day, uh, that's of her, of her fasting, Esther puts on her royal robes. Esther's rising to royalty now. She's, she's taking on her position. Uh, and you see her wisdom as the queen. Uh, as she, she doesn't just walk into the throne, uh, verse 1 there. She just st stands inside the inner court of the king's palace. She's inside just enough that the king uh, can see her. Uh, and it's a tense moment, of course, uh, because we know that unless the king offers out his golden scepter, well, she's going to be executed. But we breathe a sigh of relief, verse 2, as, as she wins his favour. He holds out that golden scepter and he comes to the king. The king says to her, verse 3, uh, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It, it shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Queen Esther. It's the first time in the whole book she's been called uh, that. Once again, we see Esther, she's rising to royalty. Uh, now, when a Persian king says uh, that they're going to give you up to half of their kingdom, uh, they don't really mean it, right? Uh, he means he's in a good mood, right? Ask me and we'll see what happens. Uh, and we're thinking, look, Esther, here's your chance. Here's the moment. Uh, go for it. Ask him. Tell him to save the people. And what does Esther say? Let down, isn't it? If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Esther uses her wisdom. She bides her time. Uh, verse 5, the king and Haman do what she's asked. They turn up at the banquet. And now we see Esther is firmly in control. Uh, verse 6, they're at this feast, they're, they're eating and they're drinking wine. And uh, we remember what happened earlier on in chapter 1, last time they were eating and drinking, when Vashti refused to turn up. Well, uh, the king asked the second time to Esther, what's your wish? After half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther, as a very good Chinese, uh, she knows not only to try and lure the king with food, but she knows that she doesn't say what she really thinks until she's been asked three times. <laughs> and so she, she holds off again. Esther says, my wish and my request is, please come back tomorrow. And the tension mounts once again. Uh, Esther's speech here, of course, seems a little bit uh, over the top as she speaks to the king. But the storyteller is preparing us to see a massive contrast between the humility and the wisdom and the patience of Queen Esther and evil Haman. Well, in verses 14, 9 to 14, the scene changes, and now the spotlight is on Haman as he does his own evil uh, preparations for the following day. Uh, chapter uh, 6, 5, verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Uh, Haman leaves the feast, and he is absolutely delighted. And of course he is. As here's Haman. He loves recognition. He loves special treatment. He loves feasts with the king and the queen. But, uh, verse 9, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. This silly man is still not bowing down to him, he thinks to himself. 
But this was a good day for Haman, and he doesn't want silly old Mordecai ruining the day. And so, verse 10, we're told, Haman restrains himself. He goes home, and he, and he calls in his friends and his wife, uh, Zeresh. Now, this Haman guy, he must have been an awful husband, I think. Uh, he gathers together his, his wife, his friends, and what does he say? Look, let me tell you how great I am. Do you know how rich I am? Do you know how many sons I have? Uh, his wife probably knew the answer to that one. <laughs> let me tell you about all my promotions. Pretty sure the friends knew about them as well. He was the prime minister. Here's Haman, proud, arrogant, self-obsessed. Uh, it's comical, isn't it? And verse 12 just heightens uh, the comedy of Haman. He goes, even Queen Esther, let no one come with me uh, uh, to the king and to the feast that she prepared. So here you have the king, and he's got his favorite wife, uh, Esther. They're having an intimate little dinner date. And then there's Haman. It's like, I mean, who wants to be a third wheel uh, on a date? But Here's Haman. He's, he's delighted. Of course they want me to be there. What else would they want? We want to laugh at Haman, don't we? Until we realize it strikes a little bit too close to home uh, for us. Because actually, when you think about it, we're so often like Haman, aren't we? Self-obsessed, fixated on our own achievements, our own self-importance, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, proudly setting themselves against God. Humanity at Babel, arrogant self-assertion. We take pride, isn't it, in our jobs and our houses and our VIP tickets that we get. We want people to notice our titles, our special badges on our cars, our doctorates, as if we are the most important person who has ever walked on the face of the earth. But the Bible repeatedly warns us, and there's a few on the screen from Proverbs, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Uh, God brings down the pride, and he raises up the humble. And Esther is humble, and Haman is an arrogant fool. Well, the fool that he is, he just can't let this whole Mordecai thing go. Verse 13, he says, look, all this is worth nothing to me, the riches, the fame, the honor, the children, so long as Mordecai the Jew is still sitting at the king's gate. It's so stupid. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, he's already at the top. He's like the prime minister of this mighty Persian empire, He's got all the accolades. He's got all the riches. And yet all that is worthless because one man won't stand up when he's walking past. But it gets worse. Uh, look at his wife's response in verse 13. My guess is she's just so sick of him uh, talking about this Mordecai. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Now, this gallows is huge. 
right? 75 feet, 22 meters. Uh, all of Susa will be able to see Mordecai hanging there. And Haman is delighted with this, with this wretched and evil idea. And have you ever seen the public service so efficient before? Overnight, it's built, it's ready to go for the next day. Do you see the contrast here between Haman and Esther? Esther, humble, wise, patient, risking her life for the salvation of her people from a great evil. And then Haman, arrogant, self-obsessed, impulsive, delighting in retaliation for the most minor of offences. But at this point, everything is looking good for Haman. He's joyful, exalted, and he's in control. And it's all about to change. From this point onwards, the sequence of events is reversed, one step at a time. And what we'll see is that Mordecai takes Haman's place of honor, and Haman will take Mordecai's place of shame. And what we're meant to see point to is that this great reversal happens because of the, of the hidden hand of a sovereign God who turns the tables. See, what happens next? Mordecai and Esther could not have planned. Uh, in fact, it looks, isn't it, as if Esther and Mordecai have left it all too late. Uh, Esther's going to go and tell the king tomorrow night at the banquet, but, but Haman's going in the morning, and Mordecai will be already dead. Well, on that night, chapter 6, verse 1, the king could not sleep. We're not told why he couldn't sleep. Maybe he was uh, wondering what Esther's uh, request would be. Maybe he had too much wine. But of all the nights, why this night? And then another coincidence. This time, no TV, uh, no midnight stroll. Uh, verse 1, he gives orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they're read before the king. So perhaps some uh, uh, boring bed-night reading about his greatness uh, will put him to sleep. Then another coincidence. Of all the stories that they could have chosen to read, what do they read? Verse 2, of how Mordecai had saved the king's life. And then another coincidence. Verse 3, the king says, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Oh, he could have just enjoyed the story, isn't it? Uh, drifted off to sleep. But, but he asks, isn't it, what, what happened to Mordecai? Did he get a medal? Did he get a promotion? The king's young men who attended him say, well, actually, king, I think nothing has, nothing has been done for him. And then yet another coincidence, the, the king decides, look, this can't wait till tomorrow. We have to sort this out immediately. And so verse 4, the king asks, who's in the court? And by another coincidence, who just happens to walk in? Haman. Now, was all this really coincidence? I mean, if it was just one of those things, perhaps you could just uh, uh, write it off, isn't it, as, as a bit of chance. But so many things, Esther chosen to be the queen, Mordecai overhearing the conspiracy plan. The king can't sleep. He reads of Mordecai's uh, uh, 
a saving, saving plan, and Haman just walks through the door. Though God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, his fingerprints are all over the story, you see. It's almost as if, I think, God is depicted as the, as the author of the story. He's there engineering the whole thing, writing the script. He knows what's in Haman's heart. He knows what he's thinking. He's moving the chess pieces around the board. And so despite the, the godly and the wise planning of Esther and Mordecai, it's very obvious, isn't it? In the end, it is God's sovereign intervention that's going to save his people. Uh, if it is God's saving intervention that's going to bring down proud Haman and raise up the humble. Ultimately, salvation comes from God's sovereign grace. Well, Haman is uh, hurried to the king. Uh, and the king says to him, look, Haman, I'm so glad you took the early train in here this morning. Look, I've got a question for you. Verse 6, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? Now, Haman's response here gives such insight, I think, into the self-centeredness of, of the human heart. Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honour more than me? Because I'm the most important person in the universe. And if there's honour going around, it must be coming my way. It's obvious, isn't it, what matters to, to Haman? What, what gets him up in the morning? The praise of people. And so he thinks of the most grand honour that he could possibly imagine. Uh, verse 7, he says, Well, let him put on the king's clothes. Let him ride on the king's horse. Let him wear the king's crown. And let him be led through the streets by the highest of officials, declaring before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. It's as close as you can get, isn't it, without uh, becoming the king yourself. And then the ironic twist. The king said to Haman, verse 10, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've been said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew. We don't need to be told what Haman is thinking at this point. But, but Haman has no choice. He says, look, leave out nothing that I've mentioned. I want you to do this properly, Haman. Make sure he's honoured properly. And verse 11, the day could not have been worse for Haman, isn't it? As he leads the one he was planning to execute that day in the king's robes through the, through the square, proclaiming his honour and glory. You couldn't get a greater reversal, could you? Here is Haman. He desires honour. He loves honour. He, he wants the greatest of all honours. But instead, what does he get? Extreme humiliation. And then there's Mordecai. Mordecai who refuses to honour Haman. But Haman is forced to honour him. Mordecai about to be hanged. Now Mordecai exalted. Uh, as uh, Christopher Ash points out, this is a little bit like a transfiguration moment for Mordecai here. Uh, his righteousness to this point has just been unrecognized, skipped over. But now we see him truly 
just for a moment in the sheer splendor of his glory. What a difference one day makes. Well, verse 12, uh, Mordecai goes back to his desk, but Haman goes home a very different man. Remember the day before? Joyful, uh, exalted, happy, and so on. Today, Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Uh, just a few chapters earlier, if you remember, it was Mordecai mourning. It was Mordecai with the, the sackcloth and ashes on his head, but now it's Haman, so shamed that he can't show his face uh, in the public. Once again, Mordecai and Haman trading places. Yesterday, boasting of his honour. Today, mourning his shame. Yesterday, his friends plotting the victory over Mordecai. And today, they speak of his certain downfall. Look what they say to him in verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, you can imagine uh, Haman, isn't it? Thanks a lot, guys. Why didn't you tell me that yesterday? <laughs> but, but they're right, aren't they? Haman is in deep trouble. Haman has just uh, deceived the king into signing an edict uh, that will destroy all Jews, and the king has just uh, honoured and exalted Mordecai the Jew. He's on the wrong side now. Uh, back in chapter 4, Mordecai had proclaimed that, that God would surely deliver the Jews from this, this terrible tragedy. Now Haman's friends proclaim that the Jews' enemies will certainly be destroyed as well. It's just as God had declared to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 3, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And Haman is on the wrong side of the Jews. From this point on, he's going to fall and fall and fall. Well, the narrative really picks up pace now. Verse uh, 14. Uh, while they were yet talking with him, they haven't even finished the conversation, the king's eunuchs arrive and they hurry to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Uh, maybe uh, Haman had forgotten about it. Uh, maybe he wasn't quite in the mood today. But now he's like Vashti, isn't it? He's being hurried along. Uh, he's, he's completely lost control by this point. Esther is firmly in control. And again, they eat and they drink. And then the third time now, the king asks the question, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. He, he asks it the third time. Uh, whatever she asks now, surely the answer is going to be yes, isn't it? And then Esther speaks. If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it, if it please the king, very humble, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Uh, another tense moment. Esther reveals her identity as a Jew. And notice how her request picks up the actual words of the edict. Uh, verse 4, she says, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been just sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared 
with the loss of the king. But you can imagine Haman's face, isn't it? When he realized that Queen Esther was a Jew. We don't need to imagine the king's response. Look at verse 5. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? Convenient, isn't it? He's right there. And quick as a flash, Esther fires at Haman, verse 6, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Short, swift, devastating. And Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. But of course, Haman's fall is not yet complete. Uh, Verse 7, Then the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Uh, Maybe he's uh, needed to cool down a bit. Maybe he's he's thinking, how am I going to get rid of this silly Haman? I mean, uh, I did sign the edict after all. uh, And Haman's in a bit of a dilemma as well. He thinks, well, what am I going to do? He probably shouldn't be alone with the queen. Going out to the king, that's probably not such a good idea as well. Running away probably wouldn't work. And so he decides he's going to stay behind and beg for his life from Esther. But his timing could not have been worse. Uh, Verse 8, as the king comes in, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Haman's falling even further now. Now, it's it's unthinkable that he had any evil intent uh, as, as he did this. He, of course he wasn't trying to molest Esther. But that's what it looks like, isn't it? And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? The king has his charge. And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's The guards rush in, they put on the blindfolds, they put on the handcuffs, and they lead him away. And then the comedy chips in. I really love this part. Uh, Harbona uh, puts up his hand and he says, uh, uh, by the way, king, uh, did you know there's this massive gallows outside? And uh, by the way, Haman prepared to kill Mordecai on it. He's the one who saved your life. And it's 50 cubits high. And Haman's thinking, Thanks, guys, for that helpful piece of information at just the right time. Verse 9, the king says, hang him on it. The ultimate irony. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the reversal is complete. Verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he'd taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now exalted, Mordecai takes the place of Haman. Exalted as the, as the Prime Minister, if you like, of, of Persia. I'm going to leave the story there. Uh, Esther is a book of reversals, isn't it? 
uh, in chapters 1 and 2. We've already seen uh, Esther and Vashti swapping places. Today we've seen Haman and Mordecai swapping places, and there'll be more to come. Haman wanted honor, but it was forced to give it to Mordecai. Haman wanted Mordecai on the gallows, and Mordecai, uh, and Haman uh, was hanged on the gallows instead. Haman boasting about his riches and his honor and his promotions, and they're all given to Mordecai. Haman's evil comes back on his own head and Mordecai's righteous deeds follow him to glory. Now we're going to see these kind of reversals all the way through the Bible story. We could think of Joseph, isn't it? Slave to King Daniel. Think of Israel, exiled and then returned. But of course this, this great reversal here in Esther points uh, to another great reversal. 600 uh, years later, uh, when the Lord Jesus came, a, a time when once again, time itself would, would slow down as we'd be focused on the most important event uh, in human history. The Gospels, isn't it? They, they, those, those last few chapters, they focus on just those few days, few hours, leading to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we read in our New Testament reading, uh, God has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Jesus came to overturn everything. Here is Haman, the enemy of the Jews, a picture for us of the devil himself and all in his realm. Uh, through history, isn't it? Satan and his agents have sought to destroy the people of God. Uh, and that opposition uh, climaxes, isn't it? At the cross itself. The cross was meant to be Satan's victory march, as God himself was shamed, cursed, defeated, killed. And then God turned the tables. The very tool that was meant to be uh, for Satan's victory became the tool of his defeat. Because there at the cross, even as he died, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He delivered God's people from Satan's, uh, from Satan's grip. We read in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so just as we're invited to rejoice at the downfall of, of Haman, we're invited to rejoice that Satan himself has been defeated at the cross. But more than that, of course, Esther and Mordecai are, are pictures of Christ in their own way as well. Esther, the royal one, humble, wise, patient, risking her life in an act of self-sacrifice to save her people, pleading for them as their mediator, pointing, of course, to Christ, the ultimate royal one, humble, wise, patient, who literally gave his life for us and was raised again to plead for us before the Father. And then Mordecai, the righteous one, unrecognized at first, but 
glorified later, exalted and given that place of ultimate honor. Uh, in Philippians 2, we, we read, uh, because of how Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross, how God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. See, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there was a major change in world politics. Satan was defeated, and Christ has been exalted as king. Now, as we'll see next week, that reversal has only just begun. The reversal for the leaders of God's people will mean the reversal for all God's people. The defeat of the leaders of God's enemies will mean the defeat of all of God's enemies. In the end, God has a day, a final day, when all those who have set themselves against him in proud opposition will be humbled and destroyed. When Jesus returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him as Lord. But that day is not yet. But Jesus' death now, his resurrection now, guarantees that day will come. And we'll see that next week. Well, it leaves us with the question uh, where we began. Will we be on the right side of history when the tables are turned, when the proud are shamed, when the humble are exalted? Which side will we be on in the end? Uh, there will always be a choice, isn't it? Uh, do we seek the honour and praise of the world or do we seek the honour and praise of God's King Jesus Christ? Will we be like Haman and search for our significance in our riches and our family and our promotions and our privileges and our titles and the praise of men? Or will we find our significance in being one of the people of God Humble, patient, wise, trusting Christ, even when the world is against us. The coming of Jesus turns the definition of honour and shame upside down, isn't it? In the end, those who seek the praise of the world will be shamed in the end when Jesus returns. But the humble will be lifted up. True honour is found in taking up the cross. True praise comes from following the king who laid down his life. True significance comes from being one of God's people, not one of the world's people. And so when we're in the office, whose praise will we seek? Our colleagues' praise or Jesus' praise? Will we tell them that we're Christians or not? When we're at home, will we boast to our friends and family like Haman uh, of our promotions and our achievements and how great we are, or will we boast in, in Jesus Christ, his death for us? In church, will we seek the praise of people? You're such a good Bible study leader. That was such an awesome sermon today. <laughs> or will we seek the praise of Jesus Satan has been defeated. Jesus has been enthroned. 
And we look forward to the day of ultimate reversal when Jesus returns and every knee bows before him. He's on the throne right now. When the tables are turned, which side will we be on? Will we live in the light of it now? Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the sovereign God who works in all things for the salvation of your people. We thank you for showing us through, through Esther and Mordecai and Haman today that the Lord Jesus Christ is your royal king who humbled himself to death but was exalted on high. We thank you that Satan has been defeated and one day he's, he, will, he will meet his ultimate defeat. And Father, we pray that you'd help each one of us to live in the light of that, to live as, with Jesus as our King, to seek his praise and his honour rather than the honour and the significance and the praise that the world offers to give. Humble us, we pray, so that when he returns, we may be lifted up. We pray this for his glory. Amen.